Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. For the past nine weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Mo Better, Keys to a Better Life. And these messages have been taken from the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount takes up chapters 5, 6, and 7, and the first 12 verses of Jesus' sermon are what we call the Beatitudes. They are those verses that begin with, blessed are those who, and then Jesus goes on to pronounce a blessing and a reward for those who fulfill certain characteristics. And um, so today we conclude this series, we'll Focus in on verses 10 through 12, but I'm going to read all 12 verses from Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now one final time, I want to remind you all of all the keys to a better life that we have examined from these Beatitudes thus far. First, from verse number one, we saw that A better life begins when we become a serious follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds at the foot of the mountain. He could have taught the crowds, but instead of doing that, he turned and climbed the mountain, knowing that some people in the crowd would not climb and follow him, others would. When When he saw that there were some who would follow him, then and only then did he open his mouth and teach them. So a better life begins with us not just as spectators in the crowd, but as serious followers of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. But it continues with us cultivating humility. Verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means a person who is humble, a person who is cultivating humility. Now remember that a humble person doesn't realize that he or she is humble. The moment you realize you're humble, you're not anymore, right? So humility is is very easily scared off. Humility is something that other people see in us. We don't see it in ourselves, but it still is something that we should cultivate because people, other people are attracted. They are drawn to humble people and they are repelled by arrogance, So it's a serious follower of Jesus who has a better life, or that's the beginning of it, who cultivates humility, who develops a genuine empathy for other people. That's verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, 
who grieve when other people grieve, who share other people's struggles. But it goes on also, a better life consists of exercising self-control. That's verse five, blessed are the meek. Meek, meekness means power under control. So meekness is another word for self-control. If there is something that you and I are doing that we should not be doing, it takes self-control, self-discipline to hold back on that which we ought not to be doing. If there's something we're not doing that we should be doing, it takes self-control, self-discipline to stand up and do what needs to be done. Self-discipline, self-control is part of a better life. Then Jesus goes on and says that, The better life is also found with a hunger for the righteousness that characterizes Jesus. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not self-righteousness, not just any kind of righteousness, but the righteousness that is of Jesus, that depicts Jesus, for they'll be filled. He also says that a better life consists of being merciful and forgiving. Blessed are the merciful, verse 7. He says that a, a, a better life is found in maintaining a purity of heart that is based on a, a singular focus on Jesus Christ, laying aside anything else that we rely upon for the good life or a better life or eternal life and just relying solely upon Jesus, that purity of heart, that person of such a purity of heart is the person and the only person who will see God at work. If you want to see God at work, it takes a singular focus and a pure heart on him. Then last week we saw that nurturing an attitude that promotes peace is part of a better life. Peacemakers uh, have better lives than those who promote turmoil. And so that leads us now to the final key to a better life that is found in verses 10, 11, and 12. And in these verses, Jesus tells us that a better life sometimes consists of being persecuted. Isn't that a strange twist? Whoever thought being persecuted would lead to a better life? Whoever thought, man, I want a better life, so I'm going to do what will get me persecuted. I doubt that anybody has really thought about that. And yet that is how Jesus concludes this list of the keys to a better life. So you have to ask the question, how in the world does being persecuted contribute to having a better life. Well, that's what we want to talk about in this message this morning. But let me, let me say three things very quickly in preface. First off, and, and this is obvious, I hope, Christians are persecuted in this world. Christians are being persecuted. Uh, the 20th century was, uh, saw the most persecution of Christians in any century of Christian history. In fact, there, there was more Christian persecution in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. So Christian persecution certainly occurs. It does happen. Uh, three years ago this month, Two major stories, news stories broke out concerning the persecution of Christians in our world. One of them was a video that was posted online by ISIS that displayed the beheading, the recorded beheading of 28 Coptic Christians in Egypt. 
ISIS videoed this. In the same month, three years ago, there was a news report of 12 Christians who were on a boat being transported as refugees from Africa to Italy. They were bound and they were uh, 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 attached to weights and they were thrown overboard for no other reason than they were Christians. So in our world, Christians are being persecuted. The second thing by preface I want to say is this, that sometimes though, what we, what we would call persecution at the outset is really something that should be labeled justifiable reprimand. Now I'm not talking about those folks in Egypt who were beheaded, and I'm not talking about those 12 people from Africa who were thrown overboard and weighted down to their drowning. But I am saying this, there are times when you and I will do or say something and someone will come up to us or some group will come up to us and they will, uh, they will confront us, they will criticize us for what we say or do. We may, in those times, interpret what they're doing as, well, I'm being persecuted. And you may be. But there are other times when we do or say things and someone confronts us and their confrontation with us is really not persecution. Rather, it is a justifiable reprimand that God sends our way to correct our going into a wrong direction. And it takes wisdom and discernment that comes from God to know, well, is what I'm experiencing persecution or is it really a reprimand that I needed to hear in order for me to change a direction and go into a direction that God wants me to go? So sometimes what we would call persecution is really a justifiable reprimand. The third thing I want to say in preface is this. It is important for us to admit especially in the United States, but certainly around the world as well, that, what, that, that sometimes some of the persecution that goes on in our world is perpetrated by other Christians against Christians. I want you to hear that. In America, uh, there, there are times when, when the persecution of Christians that goes on is not so much from a non-Christian against a Christian, but it is from Christians against other Christians. You see, uh, the Christian world is so divided. It has been for a long time. It's never been more divided than it is right now. In Christianity in our world, there are right now over 38,000 different Christian denominations. Now, Jesus did not invent denominations. Jesus invented the, the true, the one true universal church made up of all those who receive him and follow him as Lord and Savior. He did not come up with denominations. Denominations developed because this Christian group or this Christian disagreed with this Christian or Christian group about a certain uh, issue. And one of the others said, well, if you're not going to agree with me, we're going to go start our own denomination because we can't worship with you. We can't fellowship with you. And that happened again and again and again until today. Instead of, instead of one single Christian church, although there is the universal church, what we have is a fragmented church made up of 38,000 plus denominations. That includes Baptist, that includes Methodist, that includes Episcopalian, that includes Catholic, Lutheran, Charismatic, Presbyterian, that includes uh, Church of God of Prophecy, Church of God, Assemblies of God, that includes all uh, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, all kinds of different denominations. And you say, well, we're, we're bad. Within Baptists, 
In the United States alone, within Baptist, there are over 350 different Baptist denominations in America because not only do we not agree with the Methodists, but we don't agree with Baptist. So people are divided. And what happens when you have uh, Christianity that's divided, and it's always going to be that way, what happens is there are times when one group of Christians will persecute another group of Christians because that group doesn't agree with them or follow them on some usually secondary issue. And so a lot of the persecution that goes on in our world and in our nation is not by non-Christians against Christians, it's by Christians against other Christians. And we need to concede that. We need to admit that. We need to condemn that. Now, with those things in preface, let me say a few things about the happiness of persecution. First thing I want to say about peace and persecution is this. There is a time for peace, and then there is a time for peace to be disrupted. If you look at the uh, verse number nine in these Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Very important for Jesus that his people be people who make peace, who promote peace, who embody peace. Jesus himself was prophesied to be the prince of peace. And when he came, he was someone who brought peace. Peace, first of all, peace between human beings and God. He's the only one who could do it. But also he wanted to bring peace between people and people. But Jesus, for Jesus, peace did not mean a peace at all costs or a peace at any cost. Now he was willing to go to the cross, which is a high cost, but for Jesus to promote peace didn't mean that that every single situation was a situation in which we ought to make peace. For instance... Late in Jesus' ministry, he goes up to the temple, and in the temple, there is an outer area called the court of the Gentiles, and as he and his disciples were coming up to that outer court, they saw saw marketers, people who were selling products. The products that they were selling were products that were necessary for people who were going into the temple for these sacrifices. They were selling uh, lambs, they were selling birds. For those who couldn't afford a lamb, uh, the the Old Testament allowed for them to sacrifice birds, certain birds instead. Well, these marketers were selling these things. Now, these were needed products for people who didn't want to just bring a lamb from far away or bring birds from far away. They could just not bring any animals with them, go down to Jerusalem, to the temple, purchase those items, and then they could sacrifice. Not a bad deal. There's nothing wrong in and of that. The problem, I believe, came when these marketers were charging exorbitant prices for these products, especially against those who were poor. Jesus has a heart for the poor. Never forget, Jesus has a heart for the poor. So now Jesus comes and he doesn't like what these marketers are doing. He doesn't like it at all. And he could have said, he could have said, well, you know, I don't like what they're doing. Uh, but for me to overturn their tables and to drive them out, that'd probably disrupt a lot of peace. So it'd just be better for me to come in here and worship, not, not upset the apple cart, just worship, keep the peace, and leave, and leave these people alone. He could have done that. That would have been peaceful. 
But instead, Jesus didn't do that because he realized that there are some times when we are to be peacemakers, there are other times when we are to be peace disruptors. And so he goes into this place, he doesn't like what they're doing, he believes that it's wrong, and he starts overturning their tables with all of their money and all of their products just flying all over the place. Why would he do that? Because Jesus also saw that there was a place for disrupting peace. There are times when the peace that a group or a community or even a church has is a status quo peace that says, I know this is not right, but I don't want to upset the apple cart, and so we back off. That is not the kind of peace Jesus promotes. In those circumstances, Jesus promotes disrupting the peace. So there's a time for peace, and there's a time for peace to be disrupted. Second, and this really is the meat of this message. The second point, stand for something that will get you in trouble. Stand for something that will get you in trouble. Now, by that, I'm not saying go and try to start a whole bunch of trouble. That's not what Jesus is saying. I'm not saying that we should look for ways to start trouble. Not that at all. But there are times when uh, taking a stand for Jesus and taking a stand on an issue in the way that Jesus would have us to would mean that we will be put at odds at a lot of people, including a lot of our friends and perhaps even a lot of people we go to church with. And I'm saying to us, and I believe this is what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Those who are persecuted are those who realize that there are times when status quo peace needs to be disrupted, but it will get you in trouble. My question for you is, and for me, when was the last time that you stood for something that really got you in trouble? This past week, there was uh, a situation in Paris, France. There was a high-rise apartment building. And there was some tragedy that was happening in, these, in this high-rise apartment building. And there was on the, I think it was the fifth floor of one of those apartment complexes, there was some, there was some uh, a family that had a little baby. And that baby managed to get out on the, the patio of the apartment. How many of you saw this news? And the baby somehow managed to cross to, to climb up on the rail and on the, on the other side of the rail and was hanging there and was about to fall. And the adults who were there, by the time they saw where the child was, they, for some reason, were not able to get to the child to rescue the child. And the child was about to fall five floors. On the ground, there were people gathering there was a young man, he was, uh, I think he was maybe 22, 19, 22, somewhere in that 19 to 22 range. And he was an African man. And he looked up and he saw this child dangling and he knew the child was going to fall. And so he began to climb the apartment building. He jumped up, pulled himself up. He obviously was a very athletic young man. He climbed up on the first floor, got his way on there, climbed up on the second floor. From the second floor, he climbed up from the outside of the third floor, then to the fourth floor. Finally, he climbed up on the fifth floor. By that time, people on the ground are calling him Spider-Man. 
When he gets up on the, on the fifth floor, he reaches over, takes the baby, and pulls the baby to safety. That young man made a decision. He knew that climbing up that apartment complex was, was not a smart thing to do normally. He could fall. But that's not the reason why he, he did something that could have gotten him in trouble. Here's the reason he could have gotten in trouble. The man was undocumented. And so while he's down there on the ground, he has to make a decision. He's thinking, I know that I can climb this apartment complex and I have the ability to get up to where this child is and save this child. But if I do, for sure, with all these cameras around here and all these people around here, it will come out that I'm undocumented and I could be deported. So he's got a decision to make. Thankfully for that young infant, he made the decision to do something that he knew could get him in trouble. And he climbed up there and he saved the baby. Now, as you, if you've read the story, you know that uh, Prime Minister, uh, the, the French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron rewarded the young man by, by uh, giving him, starting him on, a, on an ex- expedited process of becoming a citizen of France, and they are going to make him a fireman. But you see, that young man did not know that that would happen. He did not know he'd be rewarded when he decided to go up there on that ledge and rescue that baby. He did something that he knew could get him in trouble. It's probably a good thing he was in France. Stand for something that'll get you in trouble. Third, expect repercussions as a result of your stand. Listen, Jesus stood for something he knew would get him in trouble. It got him crucified. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Nahum, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jonah, all of those men finally stood for something that they knew would get them in trouble. They were all the time saying things that they knew people wouldn't like. And guess what? Usually, this is especially the case with Jesus, when he would say things that people wouldn't like, the greatest opposition that he had, that he incurred, came not from the non-religious people, it came from the religious people. We people of faith are wonderful at shooting our wounded. And we're wonderful at a Christianity that everybody agrees with or a Christianity that doesn't get us in trouble. But let me tell you something. If your and my Christianity hasn't gotten you in trouble, what kind of Christianity are we following? Number four, this is final. When you're persecuted, when you stand for something that'll get you in trouble and it gets you in trouble, be assured that God affirms you even when no one else does. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a reward. But then he gets really, really personal with it. This is the first time he's gotten personal with one. And blessed are you when men shall 
revile you and make fun of you and persecute you and insult you and say all kinds of false things about you because of me. Rejoice, Jesus says. What? Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for in the same manner they persecuted the prophets who came before you. In other words, when you stand up for something right that may get you in trouble, even with those folks you love and who love you, when you stand for something that'll get you in trouble and they persecute you, they make fun of you, whatever they do to you, listen, be comforted by this. Number one, you have a reward in heaven, but not only that, when God sees you standing up for something that gets you in trouble, he puts you right in the same category of an Isaiah, of a Jeremiah, of a John the Baptizer, of an Obadiah. And so I ask you, are you willing to stand up for something that can get you in trouble? Let's pray. Lord, you stood up for us even though it cost you your life. The prophets preached, even though for many of them it cost them their lives or it cost them their livelihood. And Lord, here we are, we're Christians in America. The land of the free, the home of the brave. And Lord, I think that we, most of us, myself included, we have been lulled into a lazy Christianity that never demands that we do anything that gets us in trouble. And Satan loves that. He loves that brand of Christianity because it's not Christianity. Lord, we're about to go to an invitation. I pray that we would commit ourselves to standing up even when it's not popular. And I pray that someone who's here today who has never invited Jesus to be their Savior will come and say yes to Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.